taking this off because I'm a little toasty. How many are cold? Okay. How many are hot? About the same, 50-50. Okay. We're doing nothing about it. I just wanted to know so we could, uh, we could care, could feel your pain. There's a principle I want to bring tonight out of several. God is in control of our lives, even when life takes us through dangerous and difficult circumstances. God is in control. Paul is learning this. He's having a hard time. We went through in Acts chapter 22 some of the horrible things that befell him there. Now he's talking to the council in chapter 23, and uh, we'll see some of the outcome of that. Jerry Bridges said, That which should distinguish the suffering of believers from unbelievers is the confidence that our suffering is under the control of an all-powerful and all-loving God. Our suffering has meaning and purpose in God's eternal plan. And he brings our, or allows what uh, to come into our lives only that which is for his glory and our good. Amen? Isn't it interesting that his glory and our good are synonymous? That's what he wants. That brings glory to him and good for us. R.C. Sproul. If there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. Think about that. If there's one single molecule running around unfettered. Now, you, you see, I don't like to think that I'm not in control. We like some people really have to be in control and want to be in control. J. Vernon McGee put it best. This is God's universe, and God does things his way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. That's a good point, isn't it? It's God's universe. So he's going to do what he sees fit. Now, you might be able to do it better, and you can, once you get your own universe. Amen? Until then, let's just go with God's way, because that's what uh, it is what it is. A phrase that I hate, but I'll use at this point. Uh, Acts 23, verse number 1, And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God and until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by to smite him on the mouth. Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall, for thou for sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law. Got a little testy there. And they that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest? Then said Paul, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. But when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope and resurrection of the dead am I called in question. When he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. They taught us in college a great way to remember this. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They were sad, you see. You'll always remember now. You think it's silly, but you'll never forget from now on which one believed and which one didn't. All right, moving on. Uh, verse 9, And there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part rose and strove, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him by force from among them and to bring him into the castle. And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified to me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. 
And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Talk tonight, among other things, about this plot to kill. Father, I pray you'd help us in the next few moments here. What we would say would glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the chapter starts out after Paul speaks, and we see the high priest's bad temper here. Uh, he was angered by Paul. Paul said he had lived in good conscience. In fact, last week uh, we preached on, when, when we went through this uh, first part of Acts, we just stuck on that part, the conscience. And we, uh, I wanted to just focus on that for a while and what that means to have a godly conscience. Paul claimed he had lived in all good conscience. The high priest, knowing something of Paul's career as a Christian, was infuriated. And he makes a command or gives the orders for somebody to smack Paul across the mouth. That's dignified, isn't it? Somebody smack him across the mouth. The high priest was Ananias. He was the son of Nedebius. Uh, he had been high priest, made high priest in AD 47 by uh, Herod Chalcis and had ruled for about 12 years. Uh, he was one of the most crooked men ever to hold that position and he certainly dishonored that office. He was extremely wealthy and influential. His greed continued the whole time he was in office, and he used mafia-type ways of de types of methods uh, to advance his own interests. When war broke out with Rome in A.D. 66, he was assassinated by a nationalist for his pro-Roman stand. This was a man without a conscience. And whenever uh, uh, people that have no conscience are always bothered by those that do, and he was bothered by Paul's statement, they had lived with uh, in all good conscience, and so he ordered Paul slapped in the mouth for saying what he said. Now, what his order to strike Paul was an illegal one, because as it is with us today, a prisoner is was deemed then innocent until proven guilty, and so you can't uh, deem out punishment yet. Now, look at Paul's answer. Then said Paul unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall, for sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law. Now, I, I don't ever want to be guilty of rejoicing in someone else's weakness or missteps. But it's encouraging to me that Paul was a man just like all of us, and that he could get mad. And Paul got mad. He, he got upset here. Uh, he had a momentary lapse in his demeanor. And again, I'm not rejoicing in the fact that he lost his temper momentarily here, but uh, it's encouraging that, you know, these, these guys were, had feet of clay like all of us do, amen, and they struggle the same way we do. Paul's response may surprise you. We, maybe we expect Paul, in all instances, to be like what is said of Jesus in 1 Peter 2.23, who, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Not what happened here. Paul got mad. He just got upset. This was, the, you got to, we, we've already talked about the events that was leading into Paul's life here. He, he did speak the truth, by the way, prophetically speaking. I don't think he understood what he was saying. I don't think consciously he spoke the truth here, but God did smite Ananias. The phrase whited wall was a vicious, offensive thing to say. It accused Ananias of hypocrisy. The only other time the word whited appears in the New Testament is when it was said by Jesus himself. Matthew 23, 27. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! 
For ye are like the whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but within are full of dead men's bones. And sepulchres, or tombs, usually a month before Passover, would be whitewashed or painted white so that nobody would by accident uh, get in contact and become unclean so that people could avoid them. This would save them from ritual uncleanliness or an accidental contact with a place of death. When you call someone a whited sepulcher, what you're saying is you look nice from the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones, garbage. You're full of rotting corpses. It's a bad thing to say to somebody. You're uh, telling somebody that the inside doesn't match the outside. Sometimes we are not who we say we are. Little Johnny was crying in the back of the car all the way home. His father asked him three times, what's the wrong? What's wrong? What's, why, are you, why are you so upset? And finally he said, the preacher said that he wanted us to be brought up in a Christian home. And I want to stay with you guys. Too often, what we claim and what we are are miles apart. This is what we call hypocrisy. And uh, that's what the Bible calls that. By, by the way, the word hypocrisy comes from the ancient Greek language. It was used to describe actors in a play. Uh, in the ancient plays that they had, many actors would play different parts. And so they had masks, you've seen those, on a stick that they could hold up, play one part, hold up a different mask, play another part. And they, uh, the actors were called hypocritos or hypocritos, however you want to pronounce it. But the word means one who wears a mask. That's what a hypocrite is. Someone who says they're one thing, but they really are another. We use the word today to refer to people who pretend to be one thing, but are actually something else. Now, why the charge of hypocrisy here by Paul? He, he, here was one who was anointed to uphold the law and had just ordered it to be broken. And Paul points that out when he says, he, uh, you're asking to be smitten contrary to the law. So there's several opinions here of what was happening. Number one, Paul was justified in expressing righteous anger because of Ananias' character and behavior. Secondly, opinion of what's happening, Paul spoke calmly and delivered prophecy of God's judgment on Ananias. Thirdly, the one I ascribe to, and I think it's evident in Scripture, Paul lost his cool. <laughs> he uh, got stretched to the breaking point over the last few days' happenings. Or that day, really, just that day was enough. Uh, all that was happening, and he simply said something that should not have been said. Why do I think that's the one? Well, look what happens next. In verse number 4, And they that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest? Then said Paul, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. Paul immediately owns up that what he just did was a mistake. What he did was wrong. He admits to wrongdoing, and he quotes Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight: Thou shalt not revile the gods, nor curse the ruler of thy people. From the text here, it kind of seems like that uh, those there, there were those that were standing near to Paul, and there, there might have been some distance between him and the high priest. Remember, there would have been 71 people in this meeting. It was not a meeting that was planned. It was one that was hastily called together because of what the, uh, the, the, uh, um, the, the captain had told them to do there. And so they had gathered together quickly. It's very possible that Ananias was not dolled up in all of his priestly robes. And so Paul, Paul would not know him by sight. It's very likely he wouldn't know him. And so this was a formal 
meeting, not a formal meeting, I should say. It was one that was thrown together. It's entirely possible that he just didn't recognize Ananias. I think that's the case because as soon as he was told who he was, he immediately backed off of what he was saying. Paul would not expect a man like Ananias to give an order to smack him in the mouth. He would not have expected a high priest uh, to give that kind of behavior. As soon as he was made aware, Paul apologized. But I don't know. It just made me smile a little bit that he got mad <laughs> because I get mad sometimes, you know, and you get mad sometimes. And so, you know, I'm not justifying us by any means. Isn't it nice, though, when we see our Bible characters are human sometimes and we are, they struggle with the same things we do? That's encouraging in its own way. Now, the man was despicable, Ananias, but Paul respected his office. Paul was showing his own submission to the law, paying his respects to a position, if not to the person. That's instructive for us in a day when we vilify anyone we disagree with. My, but have you seen that of late? I mean, you can't disagree with somebody remaining friends anymore. I mean, if you say something pro-one political, you get unfriended by half your Facebook friends. You know, because you can't just disagree anymore. You have to uh, hate people who disagree with you. It seems to be the, the, uh, the, the feeling of the day anyway. But look what Paul did next. There's a strategy he adopted. When he perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out into the council, this is verse 6, Men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee of the hope and resurrection of the dead. I am called in question. Now, Paul was undoubtedly rattled. I think that's clear. He had been assaulted by the mob. He had been threatened with scourging by the Romans. He had been bullied by the high priest. It's clear to him he's not going to get a fair trial in this mocked up group of haters of him. Okay, so he recognizes that. So if he said, I'm a Christian, if that was his defense, he'd have gotten shouted down. In his desperation, I think he acted politically, not really spiritually at this point. Now, it did trouble him afterwards. If you read Acts 24, 21, uh, he kind of regrets what he did here. He had already seen that the council was made up with Pharisees and Sadducees. He himself had been a Pharisee. Now, it is easier, I believe, for a Pharisee to come to Christ than it was for a Sadducee. The Sadducees did not believe in miracles, did not believe in angels, didn't believe in uh, the resurrection, where Pharisees did believe in those things, and so all a Pharisee would have to do is see Jesus as the one the hope of Israel lies in and the one that conquered death. So maybe Paul could get some allies in the council if he went down this road. If he could just create a doctrinal civil war in this group, maybe he could take the focus a little bit off of himself. And so Paul tossed in a stick of dynamite into this council and uh, identified himself as a Pharisee, one who believes in the resurrection. Discuss amongst yourselves. And oh, they did. Uh, it's no surprise this dynamite blew up. Verse 7, And when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. So Paul had judged accurately. They started to fight and squabble among themselves. There is no strife so bitter as that generated by party politics. Have you noticed that in our day and age? Party politics brings about a lot of strife. Add to that religious animosity, and you have a full-on war on your hands, and that's what's happening here. And so in no time at all, 
these two parties were at each other's throat. Paul could just stand back and kind of see the, the results of what he tossed out there. I just, Paul always really knew what he was doing here. So, uh, let's read on here. For the Sadducees, verse 8, say there's no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. So Luke notes the position taken by each party, liberals against conservatives, agnostics against fundamentalists, the left against the right. This gulf between them was as wide as it is now. All they're missing is Twitter. So they had to actually fight in person, different than what we do today. They were having a big discussion here. Verse 9, there arose a great cry, and the scribes that are the Pharisees' part rose and strove, saying, We find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight God against God. And there arose a great dissension. Now, the explosive nature of the Jews of that day is demonstrated here. We can see it. Uh, the Pharisees took Paul's part and demanded his acquittal. Isn't that amazing? Uh, they were all mad at Paul a while ago. Now Paul's got them mad at each other, so half of them are siding with him. The scribes, this would be their legal experts, threw the weight of all their learning and logic behind Paul. The Sadducees, though, were now madder than ever that Paul, uh, that Paul's maneuver probably saw what he had done. But in the spirit, you remember what Gamaliel said way back when? Uh, you know, if it comes from God, how are you going to fight against it? If it doesn't come from God, it's going to die out anyway. They kind of had that same attitude here. If an angel has spoken to him, who are we to fight against it? This enraged the Sadducees. Remember, they didn't believe in that, in angels. So the meeting became complete bedlam. Soon the shouting and disorder turned violent. The Pharisees came over to Paul's side and arranged themselves alongside him, determined to protect him. The Sadducees sought to pull him away from them uh, and uh, to pay him back for their insult to their high priest. This is what happens, verse 10. The chief captain, this is the, the non-religious person here. This is the world. Fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, how messed up was this meeting? They're really about to tear him apart. Uh, actually fearing he should have been pulled in pieces, commanded the soldiers to go down to take him by force from among them and bring him to the castle. Paul's position now is even more dangerous than before. We have both factions pulling him this and way and that, and the Bible says he's in danger of being torn in two. The captain gave the nod to his men, and a detachment of soldiers rushed in to rescue Paul. And he was taken away from him. Now, look at verse 10. We see that in verse 10. And then in verse 11, it immediately changes scenes, and we see the Lord stood by him, and said, be of good cheer, Paul. I, I, I'm making a little bit of an assumption here. i got to think Paul's discouraged. I mean, he's just had a temper outbreak a little bit. He's been beaten from every side. He's got everybody mad at him. He has this big battle that he started that really didn't accomplish anything for the Lord. And i got to think he's discouraged. He's uh, probably depressed to some extent. And we see that because what does the Lord say? Buck up, Paul, in modern English. Be of good cheer. For as thou hast testified to me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. It would be natural for Paul to be discouraged, even fearful about what his future holds. Maybe he regretted all the commotion that he caused. He had failed, maybe, in his own opinion. Uh, now, what about his plans to go to Rome? 
What good had it done to come to Jerusalem in the first place? And the way the people treated him, even after he brought a gift to them, and everybody seemed against him. But that night, God drew near to Paul. He had done this on two other occasions, chapter 18, verse 9, chapter 22, verse 17. And he encouraged him. Paul had not failed. He had been a tremendous witness. His reproof of that godless priest was probably long overdue. As for Rome, he would get there. God just promised it to him. He would witness there in God's timing. And I love this moment in Scripture because there are times when we have these type of days. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the horrible day Paul had. And then he's pulled in front of these people and about to tear him to pieces. Everybody's mad at him. Everybody's yelling at him. Everybody's upset. He's now arrested. And here comes the Lord. I love that God does not forsake us. And everybody else does. It seems like the whole world's against us. And there came the Lord. Be of good cheer, Paul. Man, that stirs my heart. Because sometimes, uh, that's all we got. And let me tell you, friend, when that's all you have, you'll find that's all you need. So tonight, or that night, Paul got a word of cheer to chase away the discouragement. He got a word of commendation to comfort him in view of his failure. He got a word of commission assuring him that despite everything, he's still going to preach in Rome. It put new heart in the apostle. It would, he could take the beating of the circumstances now. This was all part of that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. All things would work together for good. He was called according to God's purpose. The next two to three years of Paul's life are going to be filled with difficulties, delays, and dangers. But Paul would rise triumphant. Uh, it is vital for us when we face challenges, that we are secure in our calling. We recognize who God is. We are secure in the fact that He'll never leave us nor forsake us. When God is with us, we can endure anything. You take God away from us and we will fold at the slightest trial. When difficulty comes and conflict arises, I've got to tell you, personal experience and testimony, if I don't know that I'm where God wants me, I'm going to run. I'm going to, I'm going to fold under those pressures. But being secure in your calling. There are times in just my ministry here that, that, uh, we've went through certain things that if I don't know God brought me here, I wouldn't have made it. If, you know, you got to be secure in that. And this is where God wants you. You're going to be in the same situation as you face certain trials and problems in life. That's when people quit. That's when people throw in the towel when the going gets and that's when we most need to be faithful. And so there's a blessing. That, that verse 11 is such a blessing. Well, it doesn't stop. Verse 12, when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, <clears throat> saying they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. And they were more than 40 which had made this conspiracy. The radicals of both parties now formed a coalition to kill Paul. Uh, this was not a new thing to him. In Acts 9.24, there was a crowd waiting to kill him. In Acts 20, 19, uh, the, the, he talks about the lying in wait of the Jews. He, he had eluded them before, but they determined he's not going to escape this time. They swore it under an oath. They set a seal on their plot by vowing that they would go on a hunger strike until Paul was dead. Now, stop and think about this just for a moment. Think about the anger and the hatred they had to be filled with. Paul hadn't murdered their mom. 
All right, he hadn't destroyed them or or uh, kidnapped their children. Paul just believed something different than they did, and here they are having this conspiracy to kill him. Not only are are they going to kill him, I'm not going to eat until I kill this man. They are so filled with hatred and bitterness. And friends, it constantly amazes me at the viciousness of even Christians when they disagree or get offended by someone else. And I just want to scream sometimes, life's too short, it's not worth it to get this angry about something. A disagreement? They're going to kill him. Hatred paralyzes life. Love releases it. Hatred confuses life. Love harmonizes it. Hatred darkens life. Love illumines it. We could go on with many other uh, truths there about hatred and love. There's nothing worse than seeing someone consumed with bitterness, consumed with anger and hatred. My, what a, what a bad place to be in. One leading psychiatrist said this, and I quote, 90% of all people in insane asylums could be released immediately if they would learn how to be how to forgive and how to be forgiven. Think about that. 90%. Here's an article from the Gospel Herald. There was a man whose health was good. He was sturdy and strong. His heart, action, and blood pressure were fine. Then his father died, and he got into a prolonged legal dispute with his sister about their father's will. The case went to court, and the sister won. From that day on, the man could think of nothing more than the lawsuit and his sister. He talked about it. He thought about it. He filled himself with it. It became an obsession. Each day he grew to hate his sister more. Then he began to have difficulty with his heart and blood pressure. Next, his kidneys bothered him. Before many months, complications killed him. It seems obvious that he died from bodily injuries brought on by powerful emotion. I believe the man killed himself to death by bitterness. End quote. Now, I implore you, don't ever get caught up in this type of destructive thinking. The Bible says that we are to beware lest the root of bitterness. I believe the Bible tells us there's a root of bitterness in all of us. We have the propensity for bitterness. We may not allow it to spring up. It'll destroy us. I have sat across from people who are so full of anger and bitterness, it just breaks my heart because that is who is hurt by it. The bitter person is hurt by the bitterness, not the person they're bitter at. And it just breaks my heart when I see that because bitterness, what do they say, is like drinking poison to hurt someone else. I mean, that's what bitterness is. And so let's not get caught up in that. To hate someone enough, to take a hunger strike, vow, hunger vow, until they're killed. My, how sad that is. The conspiracy was strong. It involved over 40 individuals. Little did they know that the God had just given Paul safe conduct to Rome. God doesn't always accomplish his purposes through visible miracles. Sometimes the most casual happenings reflect divine interference in our lives. It's amazing to me how the Lord worked this out. Now, verse 14. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great curse and we will eat nothing until we have slain Paul. It says something about the spiritual leadership in Israel that they're okay with this. By the way, if I read this, I always wondered, I wonder how long they lasted. Did any of them starve to death? Doubt it. I think finally, fine, fire up the grill. You know, we're going to have something now. I'll just give it up eventually. 
But I wonder how long, I'm just curious to know how long each one of them lasted. What a, what a sad state of affairs to be that angry, that bitter. And look, I know they're not, they weren't Christians, but Christians can get caught up in the same thing. Get angry, bitter, it keep, it keep them out of church, keep them from serving the Lord, keep them angry at other people. It's just, it's, we ought to live that way. Life's too short for that. And, you know, you're going to, God's going to put you next door to him in heaven anyway. And I believe it with all my heart. I think God's address book in heaven, he's just, just you wait until they see where they're going to live next to. Uh, we don't know, but we're going to be next door neighbors for eternity. So we better learn to get along. Actually, here they uh, even appeared, these leaders uh, appeared willing to give their blessing to this scheme. And uh, what a sad thing. Now, verse 15, Now therefore ye with the council signify to the chief captain that he bring him down to you tomorrow as though you would inquire something more perfectly concerning him and we, or ever he come near, are ready to kill him. So here's the plot. We're going to rid Judaism of Paul once and for all. The Jewish leaders are... Uh, to tell the military captain to bring Paul again. They wanna, we want to interview him again. We want to talk to him again. How sad that religion would disgrace itself with these type of dark plots and lies and violence. The chief priests and elders were involved. Satan always likes to use people of high rank to do his evil. It makes his evil look more respectable. And these leaders were willing to be accomplices in it. And uh, we'll see next uh, week a little bit more how the plot was foiled. I like verse 16, when Paul's sister's son heard of their lying in wait, he went in and entered the castle. So Paul had family. Uh, by the way, do you think it's hard for God to expose the schemes of these people? God was in control, as we started out with, the statement that God is in control, even when it seems our life's falling apart. You know, it was through some of Paul's troubles that God actually saved him from these people. And we'll see a little bit more of that next week. But my challenge to you tonight, I doubt, I doubt anybody is plotting to kill you. I hope not. But like Paul, we're going to have trials and troubles, conflicts with people. Like Paul, we're going to have the opportunity to lose our cool a little bit. But let's be like Paul and quickly, uh, he quickly remedied it, made it right. And then in his discouraged state, the Lord came by and encouraged him. It's a blessing to know that God is, not that he's on our side, we need to be on his side, amen, but as we do his work, he won't leave us, he won't forsake us. And though all the world seems to have left Paul at that point, God was there to be of good cheer and encouraged him. So let's do that for one another as well. Father, thank you for the story, for the uh, view we see here, and even, even a little bit that Paul had a momentary relapse and, and uh, might have spoken.